You're listening to Small But Mighty, the podcast of the Small Nonprofits Alliance, the online hub for Australia's small charities. Hi everyone, I'm Bianca Crocker, founder of the Small Nonprofits Alliance. After initially working as a speech pathologist and in management roles in health and public service, Prue Ingram has worked in leadership roles in the community sector for over two decades. Currently the CEO of a CCAID project, a small international development organisation that focuses on the empowerment of women in developing countries, Prue joins us today to chat about her leadership journey and experiencing with small nonprofits. I'd like to acknowledge and pay my respects to the Wurundjeri people, the traditional custodians of the lands on which I live and work, and I acknowledge the traditional custodians on the lands on which you all reside and are listening to this podcast episode today. Hi, Prue. How are you today? I'm good, thank you. How are you? I'm well, thank you. Thanks for joining us. Pleasure. So you um, began your career as a speech pathologist. What was it that sort of led you and um, now you found, find yourself in the non-profit um, sector? Uh, that's an interesting question. I think um, basically speech pathologist as part of those uh, helping community-based um, things anyway. So I started there and uh, then moved my way through a few different places for speech pathology and then ended up in the disability sector um, and took on a management role there. And from there it, I just sort of moved into public service, then into management of uh, community organisations and then into CEO positions in the international development area. Yeah, yeah, great. You have worked with a few non-profits, um, as you just said, um, most recently in CEO roles in international development. You worked previously at Interplast, which is a small international development organisation that provides life-changing surgery and medical training across the Asia-Pacific Asia region. And um, as we mentioned earlier, you're currently at a CCAID project, which is another small international development organisation and also one of our members at Small Nonprofits Alliance. What are some of the key challenges that you think are facing small charities in the international development space compared to the larger organisations in that area? I think there's uh, a number of issues for smaller organisations and sometimes they work against um, having those small organisations. So I think one of them is um, uh, funding, so competing for, for various funding buckets is quite difficult when you're a small organisation and anyone who's been involved in grant writing and applications knows that you need to put in a lot of work around that. Um, and that is not always able to be done when you're in a very small organisation. And just to clarify, um, I used to think that Interplast was uh, quite a small organisation. We had about um, 15 staff there yeah. um, and about 160 volunteers. Um, uh, working at a CCAID project, uh, there is me three days a week a program manager two days a week and a couple of volunteers. Yeah. Uh, that's small. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> so totally. I think relative. Yeah, and I probably should have, because um, I did do a bit of research back in time, I guess, with Interplast, and so it was probably a lot smaller when you started, I think, as it well, was, yeah. and then it's grown over that time. So I probably should have um, made that yeah. thing because, I, yeah, I don't necessarily think it would 
you know, count as a small organisation at, um, at the moment anyway. But, yeah, I think a lot of our listeners would be able to understand, you know, even the three roles that you just talked about in a CCA project are all part-time roles. Um, I know the organisation that I'm on the board with, we're a small international development organisation as well, and we've got uh, four paid staff, I think, now, and they're all part-time as well. So that's definitely a small organisation. Yes. So I think funding and being able to, um, yeah, compete on that stage and do some of the um, background work that usually results in successful funding submissions can be difficult. I think compliance requirements for a small not-for-profit are difficult, challenging. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, for example, um, a CCA projects is accredited with Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade and um, while that's wonderful because it means that we have you know the tick of approval around our standards and compliance and things like that uh, we also have a lot of reporting that um, not in a bigger organisation you have a compliance team or you at least have somebody who's doing that sort of work whereas uh, in a small organisation it's usually um, and I'm talking about the CC type small at the mm-hmm. moment, um, it's usually you doing all of it yeah. or, or cobbling it together. And so you're sort of moving from one compliance thing to another, to yeah. another. In yeah, a you definitely have form. to wear many hats, don't you, in what you in what, you know, like in your skills, I guess. I know that, again, our general manager at the organisation that I'm with, she, um, we were last year, went through the ACFID um, process and and um, received that but that was a big process to go through that sort of compliance and um, and she managed all of that but she's also the same person that writes grants and, and that does a whole bunch of other things so there's a lot of skills crossover there definitely yes yeah and um, yeah ACFID the Australian Council for International Development is also has compliance requirements to be a member and they're quite onerous mm. also um, yeah. Not that there's anything wrong with that in any sense at all, but um, to continually have that sitting <laughs> as a must-do yeah. <laughs> behind you with all the other must-dos can be quite uh, daunting. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And I think the other thing for a small organisation is um, getting a voice and being able to be heard. And I know that um, your alliance has spent quite a lot of time around how to maximise voice, so how to um, get some sort of presence on social media, where do you put your efforts? Um, you can't put them in all places. Um, yeah, so so they're the, probably the three things where you're competing with the larger organisations yeah. who, once again, have a department, have yeah. a strategy. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yes, so. It is tricky. Um, yeah, thanks for that mention about we do try to put in those resources because I guess one thing that we learn through the Alliance and through talking to our members is is what these challenges are and we try to provide resources around that to meet some of those challenges. But I think you're right, funding um, and in particular raising your voice is, is some of the bigger ones mm-hmm. because a lot of those things I think the challenge as well is that there's not a lot of resources in terms of time, but also the money that can be spent on those things. You know, we don't have big advertising budgets or big marketing budgets in um, in small charities at all. So um, we've got to be a little bit creative with how we do these things. Mm. And I think it's really easy to go down a rabbit hole in that area too, to get a little bit um, 
seduced by um, offers and things like that that don't necessarily fit that well with how the organisation operates. Mm. So, yeah, that, I think that's a bit of a danger. There are so many people out there trying to sell you better services, telling you that your website's not so good, that you should be able to do better with social media. Why aren't you using this tool, et cetera, et cetera? It is um, quite confronting at times. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So obviously we're going through a global pandemic at the moment, which everyone um, is very well aware of now, um, and it's obviously affected millions of people around the world. Um, it's affecting us in Australia to a lesser extent, um, but in particular those living in developing communities are seeming to have really, really devastating effects. How has your experience and understanding of the pandemic been impacted by the work um, that your organisation does uh, with some of its community partners overseas? Uh, yes, yeah, so our at ACCA projects, we're working um, in India only at the moment um, and we're working in Tamil Nadu in some of the tribal villages um, on gender projects and a children's project. Um, and um, I started with the CC and I started in the maternity leave locum position uh, last April, so bang in the, the start of the COVID uh, experience. Um, and um, the main issues have been really the lockdowns um, in the towns and villages, um, and particularly for a children's project, the lockdowns of the schools, and then a lot of the work around the COVID education. Um, it, it was pretty dire, um, really, from the start in Tamil Nadu, in the, the rural areas, and um, we did a, um, a relief distribution to about 2,500 families and um, that's pretty confronting when you are providing people with, you know, a bag of rice to help them get by, um, some masks, some soap and hoping like hell that it's going to help tide them over to get through the lockdown. Of course, we now realise that the lockdown is continuing in India and um, it's sometimes a little bit hard to know from the reports the what the, comes out from the government and what is actually happening on the ground, what the future is going to be. So it's been pretty devastating. I think it's going to have long-term far-reaching effects, particularly for children who um, the organisation has worked really hard to get into education and to stay in education and now they've had you know, over 15 months with no education um, opportunities at all except what our tutors can provide at home or via phone um, because they don't have internet access. You know, it's just not possible. So I think there are going to be far-reaching implications in the future around this whole generation of children and will they go back to school. It is really sad, isn't it? And I think if their families of the, these particular children are you know, losing loved ones and members of their families, then the ongoing effects of um, and pressures, I guess, on them having to stay in the labour force and, and work and do things like that after the pandemic is going to be really challenging as well, like you say, to get them back into schooling and back into education. Mm. Yeah, really, really so tough. It does give a different perspective to it all, doesn't it? Um, I think it gives a really different perspective and, you know, it, 
anytime we complain about lockdown, it makes, you know, you just have to think of what's happening over there. You have to think of the, 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 the challenges that they're facing. Um, and really, you know, I know we keep on saying that, but Melbourne and Australia has been incredibly fortunate. Mm, yeah, I would definitely agree with that. Definitely agree. So thinking now about your role in leadership, and I know we sort of did touch on this a little bit before, um, there's many things to juggle. You're wearing lots of different hats and it's which one are you wearing in this hour, not even this day usually because you'll be changing them regularly throughout the day. What's one of the most challenging parts specifically about leading a small team? Um, and that may include, you know, some of the volunteers that you work with in addition to your staff. And and how have you been able to overcome some of those challenges um, in your work? Well, I think this has um, been a particularly interesting time because it has pushed us all into a lot more uh, remote work. And so essentially I didn't meet anyone from the organisation um, face-to-face. In fact, I haven't met most of them. I've probably met three out of all the committee of management and the staff and things like that and the volunteers. So that has changed the sort of interactions that you can have. Mm. And um, so that has been quite challenging, um, I think, in terms of, of that. But um, in terms of leading a small teams, I think it's really like any other organisation. It's around developing relationships and developing trust and being clear on roles and expectations um, and having a, a really open line of communication so someone can turn around and say, I'm not feeling great today, I don't think I can do it, or, um, you know, checking in and being comfortable around saying, actually, I think this is the priority, what do you think? So balancing that out I think is really difficult and um being mindful of not giving people too much work to do uh, in such challenging times. So while you're juggling lots of balls, you can only hurl a couple out at a time to other people. Yeah. yeah. And is that, um, would you say that your the way you work with your paid staff is not that dissimilar to how you work with your volunteers as well? Um, I would say it's pretty similar yeah I think probably there's a bit more coaching with the volunteers and a bit more skill development yeah um yeah that would probably be the main difference but you know it's important to check in with people in a small team because it's very easy to get lost (laughs) while you're so busy juggling your own stuff you can forget that other people are dealing with different issues and might be finding something particularly challenging and you know yeah, I'm, I'm someone that's always had a pretty much an open door policy um, and that's a bit harder to do remotely, but we yeah, try and the remote open door. Yeah. <laughs> yes, that's right. Yeah, yeah. yeah that's Step great. away from the computer. <laughs> no, it is tricky, isn't it? I know um, different people that I've been speaking with over the past 12 months, you know, it, it definitely has changed our way of working, more Zoom calls, you know, and all those sorts of things, which are in some ways actually quite good. But um, a team that I'm working with at the moment, well, a couple of months ago, so it's maybe only two months ago, so it was before lockdown, this new lockdown um, here in Melbourne, we were talking about just restructuring how we do Zoom meetings because because they were so easily 
easy to be able to put into your diary. We just, there were some days that some of us were just having back-to-back meetings and it's just, it's it's not healthy because if you were in a usual work environment, there'd be breaks in between or, you know, sometimes you'd have back-to-back, but you would allow time for travel or time for whatever, whereas because you're just on a screen, you're meant to go from one Zoom screen to another Zoom screen. So, um, you know, I think it's interesting how it has transformed the way we work, but I think yeah, as much as it's great for so many opportunities, we do need to think about exactly what you said, stepping away. So one thing that you, I guess that we've all been experiencing a little bit over the last 12 months or so with the pandemic is a new level of isolation. But I I know that leaders and people working in small charities, often one of the things that um, they report is that um, leaders in small charities do often feel isolated because they are not working in bigger organisations. Sometimes they're just you know, only working with one or two other staff or sometimes just on their own as well. How is it that you stay connected with other, um, not just other people and your staff, but external to that with other small charities or with other leaders in the space? With some difficulty, Mm -hmm. (laughs) I think you could say, particularly for the last year. Mm -hmm. Um, Prior to that, you know, it was a little bit easier because there were forums and, um, you know, things like the Ackford forum was a really good thing and they did a small not-for-profits you know type uh, a small development agency thing and um, Ackford have the small agency network um, which is partly it but one of the other problems about being small is being part-time and um, often there are a lot of meetings and those meetings you've got to make a decision about whether it's worth going to those meetings on your days off or actually putting some boundaries on (laughs) so that you can actually work in a part-time fashion because otherwise with a lot of part-time work it tends to bleed into other days so yeah there's all those sorts of issues so that's difficult when I was at um, uh, Interplast I actually joined the CEO Institute and that was um, a really great thing to do I mean it obviously depended on having the budget to be able to do that but you know, for when you've got an organisation that perhaps is going through quite a lot of change, and it was um, in the early years that I was there because I was there for about eight and a half years, um, then you really need some sort of solid sounding board um, so that you can sort of talk about things in a confidential environment and was really great to have a whole lot of leaders from different organisations to be able to give you a different perspective on things. So while it's terrific to be involved in the development sector, it, I could thoroughly recommend stepping outside that if it's at all possible mm. uh, because it does give you a different perspective. Otherwise, you tend to go a little bit smaller in your thoughts and circles. Mm. Yeah. And that CEO institute that you referred to, is that from organisations of all different sizes? Yeah. 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 Yeah, and obviously businesses from the commercial world and not just for -for not-for-profits. Absolutely. And, you know, a lot of also a great opportunity to network as well and to get um, access to some different skills either pro bono or at very low rates, (laughs) you know, which is all to do with building the relationships as well. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's a really good point actually about getting outside the space sometimes. I know... um, you know, just even if it's speaking to 
a business mentor or someone like that who actually, um, you know, who can look at things from a different perspective. And I know, you know, hopefully we're working with boards on our organisations that can bring a bit of that to, you know, um, support to us. But again, what who do you talk to if some of your issues are with your board? <laughs> you need to go external, you know. So like you said, you want to be able to have confidential conversations about um about whatever it is that you, you you're going through. And I think um I think you use the word sounding board, you know, to be able to have that externally is really important. So there's some great yeah. tips there. Thank you. So obviously there would probably be lots of rewarding aspects of the work that you do and uh, in your leadership roles in particular. Has there been one particular highlight over the years that really stands out for you that you that you wouldn't have been able to have if you weren't in that leadership role? Oh, look, there's been so many of them. It's a bit hard yeah. to to talk about them. I think the one of the things that's most important is being able to make a significant change, um, and to especially when you come in new to an organisation to to look at how it operates and if there's ways that you can maximise that by using your past experience or your networks or your connections to to make it a more solid organisation. I think any time I go into an organisation, I try and get to a point where I can, as I used to say to my team, if we all, you know, won Tats Lotto or went under a bus, could somebody else walk in tomorrow and make this organisation work? It shouldn't never be dependent on a person or a personality Mm. Um, and we have quite a lot of personality-driven yeah. <laughs> charities around and, yeah. you know, they're usually the bigger ones. But I think for the smaller ones that's really important. Yeah. Um, so that's, you know, that doesn't sound like a highlight. I mean, if I was talking about highlights of my last few years in international development, I think it would probably be the work that I've done and when I've been able to visit teams in um, developing countries in the Asia-Pacific region yeah. see some of the surgeries that are undertaken, see some of the local surgeons le- learning skills that they never had before and their absolute joy at being able, say, to repair a cleft lip for the first time in the Solomon Islands or something like that, you know. Yeah. Uh, not an opportunity that a lot of people get to be able to experience, but, um, yeah, life-changing for so many. Yeah. I think having that... Um you know, key to what you're saying is having that connection to the work that you're actually doing because sometimes um, we can get caught up in the doing and the getting of the money and the getting, you know, seeking business partnerships or whatever it might be that we can step away for too long from the actual heart of what our organisation's mission is. So, so you know, that highlight for you that you just talked about in the Solomon Islands really brings that point home. Um, and I think the other thing that's interesting is when you're talking about, um, you know, the personalities and things. And I, I don't, I don't think it's as big a challenge in smaller organisations. But what I do think is that a lot of smaller organisations, especially if they've got their founder that's sort of still involved, which is a lot of the case how they've started, um, you just need to make sure that you are documenting things because again. It's, it's tricky in those very early days for some startup um, charities. It's just all in that one person's, you know, all in their mind around all the processes and the work that they do. So I think there's some really great advice in there, really awesome learnings from what you've just mentioned around trying to, you know, think about how will this operate if I was not here. 
let's think that it's because you want a million dollars, not because you got hit by a bus. <laughs> yeah, I think that would be better. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, Prue, what is your number one tip for other leaders running um, teams in small charities? And I know that's a big question too, just for one. <laughs> I could start one to ten, but no, I'll stick with one. <laughs> Look, I, I did um, think about that. I think one of the important things is probably um, uh, refers back to what we were just talking about, and that is that you want to make sure, even though it might feel like you don't have the funds for it, make sure that you can make the systems as efficient as possible so you are not spending your time going backwards and forwards, doing things that could have been automated with, a, you know, a couple of thousand dollars. Um, and, uh, you know, so you're always looking for improvements, for efficiencies, for better ways of doing things um, that fit the organisation and where it's up to. And I think sometimes um, organisations get stuck using old systems without putting their heads up to look at what else is happening around and what else they could be using and um, which are incredible time savers, you know. So yeah. um, I think systems is really important and I think um, keeping the lines of communication are open. I just snuck another one in there. Yeah, that's okay. <laughs> Thank, you. <laughs> Thank you. I guess they all relate back to efficiency, don't they? If you have good communication and great systems, your, your efficiency is probably improving. So yeah. we can have them as 1A and 1B. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds fair. <laughs> um, and lastly, something that we do like to ask our guests when they come on our podcast is what does being small but mighty mean to you? I think what it means is that sometimes you can, by being small, you can actually achieve a lot more mm. because you don't have to go through all the hoops. So, um, you know, if you work for a big charity, you've got departments and levels and managers and whatever, you want to make a change in a small organisation, um, you might need to check with a person, but you can actually make that change. You can have that really direct link um, with your partners and, and do some things that you wouldn't be able to do in a bigger organisation. Yeah, definitely. So I, think, I think it's that being able to make things happen. Thank you so much uh, for your time today, Prue. It's been lovely chatting to you and it's been wonderful to have you as a guest on our podcast. So thank you so much for your time. We really appreciate it. Thank you.